The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine and today we're going to be looking at some more Masters of War. So this will be part two in our series about Masters of War and in this particular episode we're going to be going back to the 4th century BCE and the world of the Greeks and the Persians. So this time we're going to be looking at four particular characters that are very important in that story. Firstly, uh, going into the 4th century BCE, the Greek world was very much dominated by the Spartans following all the drama of the 5th century BCE, all of the Peloponnesian Wars, etc. The Spartans were really the top dogs of Greek lands during that period. That was until a character called Epaminondas came onto the scene. He was a Theban. He was from Thebes. Epaminondas was an innovative military tactician who successfully challenged Spartan dominance. And he was celebrated by uh, classical world historians who lived in the aftermath of his own lifetime. Uh, Although we don't remember much about him today, he's not talked about as much today. So let's go back into the archives of the History of the World podcast and pluck out some of the things that we have said in the past about Epaminondas. It is difficult to know whether Epaminondas was in any way involved in the Corinthian War. We don't know much about his early life, but we can feel confident that he was born into the Theban aristocracy. If he wasn't involved in the Corinthian War, then it may have been that he was just too young. But we do know that it was likely to be around the end of the Corinthian War that Epaminondas was coming of age. Sources tell us that Epaminondas was trained from a young age for combat, with clear intention of being an important part of the Theban military. Thebes had been left wounded by the Corinthian War, robbed of its hegemony over the Boeotian League. Further to this, Sparta would enter Thebes and install a pro-Spartan government. Many Thebans headed straight to Athens, but Epaminondas remained in Thebes. Epaminondas 
played an important part in rallying up young Theban soldiers for what would ultimately turn out to be an anti-Spartan coup of Thebes. One of the contemporary sources of written information about the battle was written by the Athenian soldier and historian Xenophon. After some initial inconclusive exchanges between the skirmishes and the cavalry of both armies, it would soon become time for the phalanxes of both sides to engage. However, it is important to discuss the nature of the phalanx, as this would be a big factor in this battle. Due to the manner in which the phalanx holds its shields and spears, it is natural for its advance as a unit of men to move slightly to one side instead of directly forwards. Thucydides was one of the first commentators to speak of this right-hand drift of phalanxes, so it was a well-known fact. The Spartans would ensure for that reason that its best hoplites were on the right wing of the phalanx, which stood around 12 rows deep and led by King Cleombrotus. If you recall, the idea of a phalanx is that a row of men would be tightly packed in an organised formation with a shield wall at the front, using spears to attack. If a man was lost at the front of the phalanx, the man behind would move directly to the front, so it was a highly disciplined military operation that worked together as a unit, as opposed to the more individual nature of the skirmishers. When you consider how highly trained and genetically impressive that the Spartan hoplites were, then you can consider that the Spartan army, with its superior numbers, had the edge. However, the Theban commander, Epaminondas, would do something extremely bizarre. He would create a phalanx on his left wing that was unusually narrow, but was an incredible 50 rows deep. It was madness when you consider how much danger there would be that the Spartan left wing could potentially advance and attack the deep phalanx from the side, therefore attacking it from two angles. However, where the elite troops would normally be placed at the head of the right-hand phalanx in the traditional way that the Spartans had done, the Thebans placed theirs at the head of the deep phalanx on the left. This was highly unconventional. The Spartans seemed to be very disorientated by the strange neighbour of this Theban offensive, with the sacred band of Thebes at the head of the 50 row deep left-hand phalanx. At least this would mean that the weaker Spartan left wing might stand a chance of breaking down the right-hand side of the Boeotian phalanxes, which were made up of Boeotian allied infantry, likely to be of a comparatively low standard and working in inferior numbers. However, the right-hand Boeotian phalanxes were also in an unusually staggered formation, which stretched the Spartan left wing out, making it vulnerable to attack. The Spartan left wing 
was not fast enough to compromise their Boeotian opponents before the sacred band of Thebes had started causing serious damage to the Spartan elite hoplite phalanx, containing the Spartan king Cleombrotus. A thousand Spartan men were slaughtered at the head of the Spartan right wing, including many elite soldiers and King Cleombrotus himself. This was a decisive blow for the Spartans, who knew that they had been incredibly defeated. They called for a halt to the battle, acknowledging their defeat to the Boeotians. Aftermath The Peloponnesians headed back to the Peloponnese with a strange sense of concern that their bonds to Sparta were almost worthless. As the traditional reputation for the Spartan land army being the superior army of Greek lands was now a myth. The Thebans celebrated their famous victory. In a land which 50 years previous was witnessing the culmination of centuries of development as the two mightiest nations of Greek lands clashed when Sparta battled with Athens, it was neither polis that was the dominant nation of Greek lands now. The Spartans would never know the levels of reputation and influence that they had had ever again. The glory of both Sparta and Athens was now a historical story. Thus, the Thebans would have more victories after this one, and the map of Greece had irreversibly changed. Historians argue about whether the deep and narrow opposite flank phalanx tactic was a stroke of tactical genius by Epaminondas, or whether it was just a hurried decision in the heat of battle. It is difficult to see this as anything other than pre-planned in my eyes, but we just don't know for sure. What we do know is that this tactic was used again at future battles by different commanders, and this does point towards this being a considered approach by Epaminondas. Mainly Epaminondas is celebrated and acknowledged as one of the greatest men of ancient Greece due to his astonishing achievements. Epaminondas launched campaigns into Sparta after the Battle of Leuctra in order to debilitate the Spartans to the point of no return. The state of Messenia was recreated. Now if you remember, this was the state that had been destroyed by the Spartans back in the 8th century BCE and the origins of the population of Helots in the Spartan realm. Now these Helots had been emancipated and granted their homelands back and Epaminondas was accredited for this great and noble act. Epaminondas would relentlessly continue his campaigns to uphold Theban dominance right up until 362 BCE, when on campaign to the Peloponnese, 
he was mortally wounded at the Battle of Mantinea. It was during the 360s in Thebes that a young man who was the son of the Macedonian king Amintas III was being held captive. During this young man's captivity, he would be trained and educated and would also have great knowledge of the Theban victory at the Battle of Leuctra and the incredible tactics of Epaminondas. The young man, son of a Macedonian king, would never forget what he had learned. His name was Philip. So that leads us nicely into our next master of war, the King Philip II of Macedon. And it was really Philip who, um, due to his education at the Theban court, um, he became an expert state leader and a very learned diplomat. And he seized Macedon's place at the head of the Greek world. So let's find out some more about him. The Macedonians were viewed as being somewhat barbarian and ill-educated by the academically advanced societies and polis of the southern Balkan Peninsula. The Macedonian prince Philip had been held captive in Thebes and was able to return to his homeland just before the confrontation at Mantinea. Just three years after the Battle of Mantinea, Philip was crowned King of Macedon, becoming Philip II in 359 BCE. Macedon was very unlike Thebes, Sparta and Athens in that it didn't have their political structure. The advanced urban societies did not exist in Macedon, but Philip had learned much during his time in Thebes and was keen to try to bring the societies of Macedon together into a centralised state, or at the very least, a confederation or a league of city-states. This was something that the societies of Thessaly to Macedon's south had tried to do in the previous decade unsuccessfully. Philip had the skill and acumen to influence his Macedonian neighbours without challenge, which is something that leaders of the southern Balkan polis had not been able to achieve with it being full of competitive entities in very close proximity. Philip would not just be able to consolidate the societies of Macedonia, but he would also be able to assert Macedonian influence over many Thessalian societies and many Thracian societies. Philip would introduce these people to a more modern and urbanised way of life with a strong and organised military presence. Around this time, there was a kingdom called Epirus, which was on the Balkan Peninsula facing the island of Corfu. We mentioned this kingdom as the home of King Pyrrhus I, who invaded the Italian peninsula and Sicily in the 3rd century BCE, a story that we told in Volume 2, specifically Episode 9 about Punic history. At the moment, we're a few generations before that time. When Philip was crowned the King of Macedon, the King of Epirus was King Neoptolemus I. 
with Philip now attempting to gain as much influence as possible over the lands and neighbouring lands of Macedonia, he would look for a marital alliance with the Epirates. King Neoptolemus had a daughter called Olympias, and she would marry King Philip II of Macedon, cementing an alliance between the two kingdoms. Incidentally, Olympias would become the fourth of Philip's seven wives in a time when multiple marriages were quite regular for a monarch. In 356 BCE, Olympias would bear Philip a son called Alexander. In the south, things remained unsettled as the Thebans were still warring with the alliance of Sparta and Athens. Thebes had been closely linked to the Delphic Amphictyonic League, which was an association of societies who were loyal to the religious centre of Delphi, the home of the Oracle of Delphi. Many Thessalian societies would become embroiled in the conflict on the side of the Delphic Amphictyonic League, and this would inevitably draw Philip in as he had vested interests in Thessalian politics as the Archon of the Thessalian League. Now, the relationship between Philip and Athens was worse than ever, because not only had Philip taken control of many of the Athenian trading opportunities that they had previously enjoyed when they were a great power, but now Philip was directly opposing them on the side of the Athenian opponents of the Third Sacred War. By 346 BCE, the Athenians and their allies understood that they were not going to be able to defeat Philip and his allies, and so they sought a peace agreement. However, Philip had the upper hand and appeared keen to consolidate a position of power, and while the peace negotiations were taking place, Philip would take control of the strategically important city of Thermopylae, which we learned about back in episode 11 as the city which stood by a mountain pass which protected the lands of the southern Balkan Peninsula from northern invasion. It was around this point that Philip would send for Aristotle, the famous polymath, who was at the time based on the island of Lesbos, to educate his adolescent son, Alexander. So the Athenians now had no position of power against Philip, and Philip would actually start to extend his influence over Thracian lands, which threatened Athenian interests in and beyond the Hellespont. Although there was supposed to be a peace treaty between Philip and Athens, there was still an anxiety about Philip's behaviour in Greek lands, and especially in Athens, who simply saw Philip as someone gradually taking more and more power out of everyone else's hands. The modern city of Istanbul stands on the Bosporus, which is a strait of water which leads to the Black Sea. In order to reach the Bosporus by sea from Greece, you would need to travel through the Hellespont and across a small body of water called the Propontis, the modern sea of Marmara. The modern city of Istanbul was probably established during archaic Greek times and was called Byzantium. Byzantium was another highly strategically placed city due to its location on the Bosporus. Philip would besiege Byzantium and the Athenians 
could not just sit and allow this to happen. Athens allied itself with Byzantium and would effectively and actively oppose Philip and Macedonia by doing so. Philip had to make Athens pay for their opposition and so Philip would send an army south expecting assistance from the Thebans. However, the Thebans had recognised by now that the Macedonians were now a very real threat to the autonomy of all Greek-speaking people and decided that they too would oppose their former allies and stand alongside the Athenians against the Macedonians. So an incredibly vital confrontation was inevitable and it could prove to be the most consequential battle of Greek history considering the sheer strength that the Macedonians had accrued versus the remnants of the battle-weary Poles of the southern Balkan Peninsula which had been battling each other for the last 150 years. Philip and his son Alexander would lead an army south where they would meet the allied forces of Thebes and Athens along with many others at what would become the Battle of Chironia in August 338 BCE. Alexander was now an 18-year-old man and in typical fashion as a potential heir to the throne was one of the army commanders. Chironia was further south than Thermopylae in the heart of Boeotian lands. In short, Philip's Macedonians would defeat the alliance of Thebes and Athens and this would effectively end opposition to Macedon. The Poles of southern Greece were exhausted and Greece would be changed irreversibly. Philip would establish a new Hellenic League of Nations that would promise freedoms to the Poles of Greece such as Thebes and Athens. In reality, Philip wanted to establish hegemony over the Poles, effectively disbanding the traditional Greek model of the polis in favour of a Macedonian imperial setup, which would pull the resources of the Greek lands together, not least of all to feed the imperial ambitions of Philip against his next target, the Achaemenid Persians. Now it is definitely worth looking at what this meant to Greece and we can represent two philosophies through two different characters. In the past we have seen entities such as Athens and Sparta attempting to achieve hegemony over other lands by forming confederations such as the Delian League and the Peloponnesian League as means by which to control political affairs both at home and in foreign lands. It was always a precarious balance of diplomacy when looking at how much autonomy that members of these leagues would have in order to maintain their loyalty so that they believed that they were in the most beneficial position to them while at the same time understanding that they had a commitment to the league. Although the establishment of the Hellenic League after its first meeting at Corinth is often identified in history as the end of the existence of the traditional Greek polis, certainly in terms of a political theory. Philip really wasn't introducing anything too radical here 
and was just instigating a modern version of the traditional formation of a diplomatic league of polis, being actively policed by Macedonian administrators. The other character was an opponent of this transition, a man who stood up for the autonomy and integrity of the polis, a man called Demosthenes. Where Plato and even Aristotle would be believers in the theory of the Greek polis, nobody was quite as outspoken as the Athenian statesman Demosthenes. Demosthenes hated Philip's ambitions to establish a hegemony over the Greek polis, believing that the Athenian citizens should stand up for that which they have collectively achieved over generations by bringing Athens into the modern age as a complex and well-structured and organised self-sufficient city-state. Followers of Demosthenes in Athens and indeed in other polis were inspired by his words, but it made very little difference to the reality of the situation and this was now the era of Macedon. Philip always held anti-Persian sentiments, possibly dreaming of the glory of a meaningful victory against the Achaemenid Persians. He had always entertained Persian exiles and possibly even gained knowledge from them, but harbouring your enemy's exiles wasn't an unusual practice in these times. Philip knew that he would gain even more power by befriending the Greek-speaking societies of Anatolia, such as the Ionians, who had always been in the middle of political differences between the Balkan Poles and the Persians. If the Ionians were liberated from their Persian overlords, they would surely support Philip's ambitions, confident that they would be able to celebrate their Greek cultural heritage without Persian interference. What happened next was unforeseen. The capital of Macedonia was a city called Pella. It was where Aristotle travelled to when he tutored Philip's son Alexander. Alexander's parents, Philip II of Macedon and Olympias of Epirus, would have one other child together and her name was Cleopatra. Now this is where the story gets a little bit fun. So strap yourself in and listen very carefully as you may need to go back and listen again if you don't get it the first time around. Cleopatra would be betrothed to her own mother's brother, a man called Alexander, and a man who shared the same name as her own brother. The wedding was planned to take place in the Macedonian capital of Pella, so it was a further bond between Macedonia and Epirus. So Cleopatra of Macedon was married to Alexander of Epirus in the year 336 BCE in a huge ceremony that attracted many Greek dignitaries. The wedding celebrations would move to the city of Egi, where there was a theatre. The theatre was a circular construction surrounding a stage called an orchestra. The raised wedge-shaped cuny seating area surrounded the orchestra, creating a semicircular theatron for which people could sit and watch the performances. 
These kinds of theatres were a common construction in classical times, and such constructions certainly date back to the second millennium BCE Minoan societies at places such as Festos, which we mentioned back in Volume 2 during Episode 23, our episode about the Minoans, as the palace site where the mysterious Festos disc was excavated. The Macedonian king would normally be accompanied by seven Somatophiliches, who essentially were royal bodyguards. King Philip II himself would be approaching the theatre at Egi to continue the celebration of his daughter's wedding, when one of his own Somatophiliches, a man called Pausanias of Orestis, shockingly stabbed Philip and killed him. The death of Philip II The death of Philip II of Macedon is quite mysterious. The assailant, Pausanias, reportedly fled the scene, pursued by three friends of Philip's son, Alexander, who caught up with him and killed him. As we already know, homosexuality, particularly among the upper classes of society, appears to have been treated as the norm in many Greek-speaking societies. Pausanias was actually a former lover of King Philip II, but he was not just Philip's lover, but he was Philip's jilted lover. It is also possible that Pausanias was appointed as a somatophylax, to pacify him after a sexual crime was committed against him by one of Philip's own courtiers. Everything just described would sound like enough of a motive for Pausanias to want to murder King Philip, so we could just move on. However, there is the small matter of King Philip's own wife, Olympias, mother of Alexander, creating a great memorial for Pausanias. Now this seems incredibly strange considering that there appears to be no connection between Olympias and Pausanias. However, Philip's successor was his son by Olympias, Alexander, and Alexander showed a ruthless streak towards any potential rivals to his power, right from the very start of his reign. So let's have a look at this situation from an alternative perspective. Alexander was a power-hungry individual, and his legacy is something spoken about with enthusiasm to this very day. If he was ruthless by nature, then it is very possible that he felt that he was ready to take the Macedonian throne for himself, and this would mean pushing his own father to one side. If Alexander was responsible for his own father's murder, then it might explain why three of his personal friends were quick to pursue Pausanias, and why Alexander's own mother would ultimately celebrate Pausanias as she did. Nobody other than the three friends appeared to have witnessed Pausanias' murder suggesting that the entire sequence of events was an elaborately planned and staged act, 
quite ironic considering that it took place at a theatre. The death of Philip II was something that was welcomed in many Greek-speaking areas such as Athens, who were being rallied by the outspoken statesman Demosthenes. Many of those who feared Philip's dominance of the Greek-speaking lands would see an opportunity to break away from their Macedonian ties and fight to regain what they had lost following the Battle of Chironia. However, if they believed that things were looking brighter for them now that Philip was dead, they could not have been more wrong. We now move over to the Asian side of the Bosphorus Straits and the Persian Empire. And the leader of the Persian Empire, uh, when Alexander the Great, Philip's son, invaded Persia, was a man called Darius III. In ancient Greek, he referred to as Darius, or we sometimes hear him called Darius. Um, but uh, we chose to call him Darius III. And Darius actually had um, a very impressive, very admirable uh, military history before coming to the throne. He earned the respect of his contemporaries and he managed to survive a competition for the Persian throne where rivals resorted to poisoning each other to reach the top. And he was the one that emerged at the top of the tree when all of this was done. And uh, as we say, he was on the throne when Alexander the Great marched into Persia. But let's find out a little bit more about him. When Darius III ascended to the Persian throne in 336 BCE, the Achaemenid Empire was in a comparative state of turmoil, with many of the satrapies displaying rebellious behaviour towards its central governance. Philip II of the Kingdom of Macedon had been expanding his kingdom to encompass all of the Greek city-states and the lands of Thrace. Philip was preparing his kingdom for an invasion of Achaemenid Persia to avenge all of the actions of the Persians during the previous century when Darius I and his son Xerxes I invaded Greek lands. It should have been a fortunate turn of luck for the Persians when news that Philip II had been assassinated by one of his own bodyguards surfaced. Those Anatolian Greeks who were battling for their freedom from Achaemenid rule found themselves deflated by the news and the Achaemenids were subsequently buoyed by it. So the tide was turning in the Achaemenids' favour. Philip's son, would succeed him as Alexander III of Macedon. So in 336 BCE, both the Persian Empire and the dominant kingdom of Greek lands Macedonia had new kings. Darius III was a wily man in his 40s. Alexander III was barely an adult and under pressure from the Greek city-states who saw an opportunity to overthrow Macedonian hegemony. Within the first two years of his reign, Alexander had successfully defended the work of his father and kept the restless Greek city-states under Macedonian hegemony, 
in an alliance called the Hellenic League. This was not good news for Darius and the Achaemenid Persians as one of the primary purposes of the Hellenic League was to pull the resources of the Greek city-states in defiance of the Persians themselves. So logically, it would appear that the Greeks were about to make military incursions into Anatolia and the Greeks of Anatolia were ready to challenge their Persian overlords. Despite the fact that the Spartans refused to join the Hellenic League and its campaigns and the fact that some of the Anatolian Greeks decided to fight for the Persians against the Greeks, Alexander personally took a considerable military force across the Hellespont into Anatolia in 334 BCE and engaged the Persians in the battle at the Battle of the Granicus River. The victory of the Hellenic League at this battle was the first time that a foreign enemy had taken significant land from the Persians with the western portion now being under Macedonian control and not just the coastal city-states. It appears that the young and fresh Alexander was introducing a more liberal sense of rule in the satrapies of Anatolia which may have been tired of the tyrants loyal to the Persian court. More towns and cities appeared to welcome Alexander, so Darius and the Achaemenids had a huge problem on their hands. Darius had no choice but to get personally involved and lead an army to intercept Alexander. Their forces would engage near the town of Issus in southern Anatolia. Despite being outnumbered by Darius's forces, Alexander scored an unlikely military victory at the Battle of Issus in 333 BCE. This was a bitter blow to Darius, who was forced to flee the battlefield. He had taken the dramatic action of personally leading the Persian army and subsequently was defeated. Darius had lost the whole of Anatolia and had lost considerable face on the battlefield. Why should the Persians continue to support Darius? A king who could not deal with this exciting, young, intelligent, brave and modern king, Alexander. Darius would offer half of his empire to Alexander in return for a peace treaty and a political alliance. Alexander told Darius that he was beneath him and that he would not stop until Darius had been personally defeated in battle. Some of the Persian naval forces were now the property of Alexander since taking the city-states of their origin. This would give Alexander the ability to conquer those city-states of Phoenician lands before approaching the Egyptians who were sick and tired of Persian interference in their politics and welcomed Alexander into their lands. The Persians would have no choice but to abandon Egypt. Alexander's forces would then engage with Darius again in the former lands of Assyria and Babylonia. This time Darius would ensure that the battle would take place in open land where Alexander could not outmanoeuvre Darius 
around tough terrain as he did at Issus. Somehow, once again, Darius got it wrong. And Alexander was able to infiltrate the Persian army ranks. At the Battle of Galgamela in 331 BCE, Alexander had managed to secure all lands west of Mesopotamia. The Persian Empire was falling apart and Darius could not stop it. Darius would have to head east and form another army. Darius appealed to his eastern satrapies for help, but the satrapies had seen enough. How could they possibly believe in a leader who had been soundly defeated on the battlefield again and again? Darius retreated to Bactria in the north of the remainder of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, where the satrap Bessus recommended that leadership of the Persian army should be transferred from Darius to himself due to Darius's inefficiencies. Darius, as the king, had to refuse. It was unimaginable for Darius to allow another man to lead his own empire's army and demonstrate greater military leadership qualities than himself. Darius was in an impossible position. The remaining Persians and Darius himself knew that he was unable to defeat Alexander on the battlefield. However, Darius could not afford to be captured himself, otherwise he would surely be executed. There was already high danger that the desperate Persians would assassinate Darius in any case. If Darius gave command of his army to one of his satraps, then the Persians might prefer that man to be the king instead of Darius. Darius would have to insist upon leading the Persian army again, and nothing short of victory would be good enough. So Darius refused to relinquish control of his army to the Bactrian satrap Bessus. For Bessus, it would be unacceptable for him to continue to allow an incompetent king to lead the empire's army. Upon Alexander's approach, Bessus would abduct Darius, throw him into an ox cart and stab him with a javelin before fleeing himself. The Macedons would find Darius lethally wounded and taking his last breaths. Alexander would grant Darius a funerary ceremony befitting of a king. So that leads us on to the masterpiece of the episode, Alexander the Great. Darius certainly met his match with Alexander the Great, who succeeded his father as the king of Macedon at the age of 20 after being tutored by Aristotle as a youngster. Uh, He created one of the largest empires in history in just 10 years, just the space of 10 years he did that. And uh, his innovative, uh, quick thinking on the battlefield uh, helped him to ultimately become uh, undefeated on the battlefield. So uh, 
we're running out of time, so we better just briefly go back and tell you a little bit about Alexander. We are already familiar with the story of Alexander III of Macedon. He crossed the Hellespont from Thrace into Achaemenid Persia and defeated the Persians at the Battle of the Granicus before advancing across Anatolia down the Levantine coast to conquer Egypt with relative ease. Alexander would then meet the Persian king on the battlefield at the Mesopotamian site called Galgamela and he would win this battle, effectively opening the Achaemenid Persian rule of these lands up to its eventual destruction. Alexander would then mop up those societies in the east of the Achaemenid Empire such as Bactria and Sogdiana, therefore becoming the new ruler of a Macedonian Empire. Despite Alexander the Great having a reputation for being arguably the greatest military leader of all time, there are areas of controversy. He killed one of his trusted officers, Cletus the Black, with a javelin after a drunken argument. Alexander was insatiable in his desire to subjugate more and more lands, kingdoms and rulers. After the success of the Battle of the Hydaspes, Alexander's army was fed up and mutinous. And Alexander had to make the tough decision upon reaching the city of Taxila to head back towards Mesopotamia to pacify his troops. The way back to Persepolis was troubled. Alexander was almost killed when he was struck by an arrow during the Malian campaign on his way out to the easternmost lands of the Persian Empire. Even though he recovered, many of his army lost their lives, dehydrating in the unforgiving Jedrosian desert. When Alexander did eventually make it back to Mesopotamia, he was furious to learn that some of his officials had ruled irresponsibly in his absence. Alexander understood that he had to take decisive action to prevent tension between the Macedonians and the Persians. So he would punish those officials who had let him down. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Even executing some before giving some of the Persians important military status in place of those veteran Macedonian military leaders and soldiers. Alexander also arranged for many of his Macedonian officers to marry the daughters of the noble families of the Persian lands that he had conquered, in a bid to consolidate the people of his new empire. 
Before Alexander could move on to his next conquest, he fell ill and died in 323 BCE at the age of 32. Alexander's death would trigger great unrest in his vast empire. Warfare would break out, and particularly in the lands back in the Greek-speaking heartlands. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast magazine on the Masters of War, our second part, and we revisited those great military generals from the 4th century BCE. A few of them come in a row and we investigated them all and uh, really good fun to go back and, and find out a little bit more about them all over again. If you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, then do please visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on that Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. It really makes a difference. You'll become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, a very exclusive club, and you'll qualify for the gifts and rewards on offer. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. Talking of rewards, um, History of the World podcast Illuminati uh, member Jeffrey Malloy um, wrote in because uh, he was given the opportunity to commission his own special episode, which is something we've done in the past for um, some very special History of the World podcast Illuminati members. And he's written, hey, Chris, I'm happy to be a continuing contributor to the podcast. And I'm excited that I've reached the point where I get to choose a topic. I've been racking my brain trying to think of an interesting topic that hasn't already been covered or will be covered in the podcast this has been difficult since you do such a fantastic job at covering pretty much everything i could think of um i've finally decided on the legendary legio ninth hispania the roman ninth legion with as many places as they fought and all the theories and fantasies of what happened to them. Plus, since we've finished the Romans, I figured that it would make a great episode. Let me know what you think. Thanks for all your hard work, Jeff. I think that's a fantastic suggestion. Um, the Roman Ninth Legion um, had that... They, they were based quite a lot in Britannia and they seem to just sort of disappear off the face of the earth. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding them. So I think it would be fantastic for an episode. And sometime during 2024, we'll do that episode, Jeff. And uh, thank you very much for everything that you've done for the podcast. And it's my pleasure to be able to do that for you. Uh, Kartik Balaji has written in and said, Hi Chris, my name is Kartik, currently writing to you from North Dakota, USA, and I've been following your podcast since 2021. I recently had the pleasure of listening to your episode on the Chola dynasty of Southern India. As a person of Tamil descent, I appreciate you having spent time researching and presenting this part of the subcontinent, which is often overlooked. Cheers and keep up with the amazing job you've been doing. Kartik, it's a great pleasure for me to receive that message from you. 
um, it's difficult for me, I think, to necessarily empathise with the uh, the pa- the patriotic feeling that people have towards their their own lands. And so, when I'm writing episodes, I, I tend to be quite mindful of that. Um, and I and I just hope I hope that the episode does your part of the world justice, and that I that I've covered it as as well as. Uh, somebody who doesn't come from that part of the world can. Um, so your message does mean a great deal to me, Kartik. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. These masters of war. I'll tell you another thing, um, and I might go into this next week in, in the debrief episode, but um, somebody was um, somewhat critical of the amount of time that we spend talking about um warriors great great warriors and um commanders of battle military generals uh and battles in general they were quite critical of the fact that the history of the world podcast does that but i think when you're writing a general history you have to be you have to just be uh, honest to the mainstream timeline this is what people want from a podcast like this um there are history podcasts out there that do dig deeper into um, such subject matter as you know what um, what Billy the farmer was doing with his day-to-day life but essentially what Billy the farmer was doing although it was is somewhat interesting on the grand scheme of things you know if we look at every Billy the farmer that's ever existed he had quite a boring life um, doing the same thing you know pretty much in most areas of the world that Billy the farmer may have lived in so it's not really a very interesting um, topic let's say you could write a topic about um, farming in you know in Peru in ancient Peru you know it could be quite an interesting topic but the thing that shapes the world we live in are the things that change the world that we live in and often change is brought about by war so if i hadn't done the battle episodes we wouldn't have learned about yan jiska um and the hussites you know so that was a good opportunity to to cover that and we we maybe wouldn't have learned more about the the nature of uh, clan ireland in the 11th century had we not um looked more closely at the uh, one of the battles that took place there, the Battle of Clontarf. So these are very important episodes in terms of understanding why the world we live in today has become the world that we live in today, which is pretty much what history is all about, is understanding the past and um, and enabling ourselves to understand our present and our future. So although I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea to be listening to battles and and warfare that kind of thing it's the politics behind it and the aftermath the legacy of those battles that are really what are interesting to people who want to learn about general and fundamental history so in some respects you know maybe I'll give you a little apology I can't give you a big apology really because I really believe that these battles shaped the world that we live in today anyway enough about my opinions i I talk a lot and um, i'm sure you've got plenty to be getting on with 
um, including looking forward to this weekend's episode uh, about the Battle of Jongdu, uh, which is Chinggis Khan and the Mongols versus the Jin Dynasty of China. So that's coming this weekend. One to look forward to. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week, everybody, and be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast.com at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.